Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 75, The Way to Eden. Welcome to another episode of the grooviest far-out Star Trek podcast. It's Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion, and we reach, brother. Each week, we talk about Star Trek, and we really investigate the morals, the meanings, and messages of every episode. And let me tell you, it sounds... Oh, it really sounds. And you can sound with us, brother or sister, as the case may be. On Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, the handle is MissionLogPod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. You can email us at MissionLog at Roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, but hey, don't be a Herbert about it if we don't, okay? (laughs) This, this episode will be full of groovy talk, and I'll be shocked if we make it through it without you singing at least once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know all the words yet, but we should tell people what, what the episode actually is. Yeah, the episode is The Way to Eden, and uh, derisively known as the Space Hippies episode. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it is. It, it is the Space Hippies episode. It is uh, very much a Space Hippie episode. But, it, uh, but you but, know what? But, but, the, but the trick here, the trick on Mission Log is to dig deeper. To yeah. see if there's more than just the Space Hippie episode. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, yes. Uh, not unlike Spock's brain. Everybody says, oh, yeah, that's that one. But then, you know, you just chip away a little bit at the surface and maybe you find a whole lot. Maybe it really does sound. We'll find out. What we need to find out before that, though, because I know in an episode like this, I mean, this is one of those episodes where there has to be a lot of, like, you know, um, uh, trivia kind of stuff. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and lay that out for me, brother? All right. All right. Well, let's see here if we can chime with the trivia. Um, First of all, I got a couple of discovered documents that I need to bring to everybody's attention. We have the music agreements uh, with both Craig Robertson. He was the composer and Arthur Heineman, the writer uh, for the lyrics to the music used in this episode. And actor Charles Napier was also given a credit. So he did (laughs) contribute to the... uh, the music and the lyrics that are used in the way to Eden. Um, So you will find those on the website, missionlogpodcast.com. Now, we also have a photo. Now, this was submitted by a listener, so uh, thank you very much. And uh, it shows a Tholian vessel alongside the modification done for the Aurora, the little stolen ship used in the way to Eden. That ship is a Tholian ship but with a couple of nacelles attached. And uh, our listeners snapped this picture at the Smithsonian exhibit from the early 90s. Um, Now, I don't know about you, Ken, but I I watch both the remastered and the original versions. I try to do that every week, but uh, I know that I wanted to on this one in particular. Um, There's something to be said for both. Um, It's kind of cool to just see the recycled Tholian ship. And the new one that they created is kind of whimsical. It kind of has this... 50s sci-fi look to it like a little almost like a like a vw bus with some nacelles on it (laughs) so i thought that was kind of cool very in keeping with the hippie nature of the uh of the the seekers of eden 
Right, right. Now, uh, we have a lot of guest stars, uh, so I'm just going to give you uh, a quick look at a handful of them, not all of them. But I, I did mention earlier Charles Napier, who I really love. He's <laughs> let, me, let me stop you right there. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> yeah, right. When I'm watching this, I'm like, there's something familiar about that guy, but I can't figure out what it is. And then once I realized who it was, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness. Yeah. 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 You, you can't stop thinking that that's Charles Napier now <laughs> when you rewatch it. It's kind of tough. Yeah. Um, he, he is best known for playing a tough guy, usually a military guy. Um, I loved him in Austin Powers. And, of course, he has a tiny, tiny role, but so memorable in The Blues Brothers. So uh, that's one that really stands out to me. Uh, it really reaches me, man. Um, also, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, uh, Silence of the Lambs, a bunch of episodes of the A-Team. I mean, it, it, the guy's resume just goes on and on and on. See, this is one of those things where uh, not unlike, uh, you know, maybe a Darren McGavin uh, movie mm, or something mm-hmm. like that, you're going to miss somebody's favorite. Yeah, like, totally. You, you missed mine. Oh, uh, no. Which one is yours? Well, I think he really sounded in the uh, karaoke party and the cable guy. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. Just, and I don't remember if he actually sang there or not, but I just, I mean, I just, yes. Yes. Yeah. Once I saw him, I was just like, hey, wow, everything. He's like that guy from Tomorrow is Yesterday, who's sadly, whose name I can't remember now, but he's like that guy that like, right. once you recognize him, you're like, oh man, he has been in everything. Just everything. Yeah. 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 Sorry, um, sorry to hear that as we record this, he uh, passed away just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Because yeah, I would have, I would love to have reached out to him and mm-hmm. well I'll see if we could reach and reach yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we also have uh, Skip uh, Homeyer who we have already seen in Patterns of Force he was Melicon mm. in that and uh, you recognize him because of his incredible voice and he started in radio did a bunch of TV but uh, it's kind of cool to see him back in a very different guise in this um, Victor Brand who played Rad which is a cool name for a character Rad <laughs> uh, <laughs> He also had a fantastic, has had, still has a fantastic career as a voice actor. Everything from video games and cartoons to features. uh, Very, very cool. Now, Deborah Downey, uh, she doesn't get a name in this episode. Uh, She is the blonde hippie who stands out for having the singing moment with uh, both Charles Napier and then the jam session with Spock. she actually had a great career as a singer from a very young age. She toured with the Dick Clark Car- Caravan of Stars, uh, which had her working with some huge acts of the early and mid-60s. Um, she only has a handful of credits as an actor, though, and uh, I- I'd say about half of those are exploitation films. So not a big career as an actor, but she certainly stood out in uh, in this one. She's very memorable. That's, um, that's really kind of too bad, too. I will say she is great on the bicycle wheel. <laughs> she, she can really jam on the bicycle wheel. She can wheel. indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I think she had that on her resume. That's probably why she got the job. <laughs> May well be. Uh, yeah. Because they were just going to dub that in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you but can really like, tell no. the difference when she's yeah. – yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. um, David Alexander, the director, his only other directing credit for Star Trek is Plato's Stepchildren, which we talked about a few episodes back. Um, we mentioned Herbert. You don't want to be a Herbert. That may well have been a little swipe at Herb Solo. Um, not that people disliked Herb, but uh, that was a little in-joke for the show. And uh, by the way, you may have noticed, again, a writing credit on this one for Michael Richards. Again, 
still not the guy from Seinfeld. That is a pen name for DC Fontana when she maybe wanted to distance herself from a story. Um, but yeah, DC is indeed one of the writers on this show, uh, as was Arthur Heinemann. Before we get to today's recap, we have a thing about which to tell you that we think you'll like. You'll certainly like the name. It's called Transporter. Transporter is a storage device that lets you create your own private cloud for syncing, accessing, protecting, and sharing your data. Now, you can do that with something like Dropbox, but if you have anything like a serious amount of data that you want to store or share, you can't do it safely, nor as economically. With Transporter, you don't have to worry about who has access to your digital life because you make that decision. Your stuff's not stored in an unseen server farm who knows where. It's stored on a physical device that you control. You share with whom you want to share, whether they have a transporter or not. As for cost, 100 gigabytes of storage on Dropbox will run you $99 a year. If you already have a drive that you want to use, you can pay $99 one time for the transporter sync and get the same functionality without the recurring costs or security concerns. 500 gigabytes of storage on Dropbox will cost you close to $500 a year. You can do that. Or you can spend $249 one time for a one terabyte transporter. That's more storage, more security, and a one-time cost that's less than half what you'd pay on Dropbox for less. The benefits of a transporter are big. Learn more about them yourself at filetransporterstore.com. Check out the models and offers they have available. Then, when you decide to buy, buy at a discount. Because you're listening to Mission Log... You can use the offer code MLOG. That'll get you 10% off on your order. All caps, no spaces, MLOG. MLOG will get you 10% off when you buy your transporter at filetransporterstore.com. They come with a 30 day money back guarantee, so you've really got nothing to lose. Beam yourself over to filetransporterstore.com to find out more. Transporter. Storage and sharing made simple and secure. Brought to you by Connected Data. And we do thank them for sponsoring this week's Mission Log. You know the episode with the gangsters. You know the episode with the Nazis. But none of those chime like the episode with the hippies brother. Also, sister. Prologue. The Enterprise is chasing the Aurora, a stolen Federation ship with six aboard. Refusing to stand down, the Enterprise locks the Aurora in a tractor beam. Their struggle to get away destroys the Aurora, though Scotty is able to beam the ship's inhabitants out just in time. And a nice lot, too. Act 1. The son of the Catalan ambassador is one of the six who'd been aboard the Aurora. It is because of that that the six are not thrown in the brig. Kirk orders Scotty to take them all to the briefing room, though over the intercom, the bridge hears one woman say they're not in the mood. Chekhov thinks he recognizes that voice. In the transporter room, the six are starting an impromptu sit-in. No go! No go! No go! Kirk and Spock head down to investigate. In the transporter room, the two officers meet Tongo Rad, son of the Catalan ambassador. He gives the boy a good talking to, about how he has his father to thank for keeping him out of the pokey. Tongo Rad is unimpressed with Kirk, and declines to comment on why he did what he did. 
He also declines to call Kirk Kirk or Captain or any combination of the two. Instead, he calls him Herbert, a pejorative term for someone who's overly officious, too concerned with the rules, a mid-level manager noted for his rigid and limited patterns of thought, a square daddy-o, and apologies to anyone listening whose name is actually Herbert. I'm sure we reach. Kirk tells Spock to take the Aurora 6 to sickbay for a checkup, though Spock would like to talk to them first. Turns out he totally grocks their fullness. They are one. He is one. He is not Herbert. While he knows what they're after, Spock says he'd like to hear them say it outright. Fine. They've turned their back on confusion. They seek a simple life. And they'll start on the planet Eden. Kirk says that planet is a myth, though the leader of the group says they recognize no hostilities and no authority but that which is in themselves. Check the braids, dude. I'm the authority on this ship, whether you recognize me or not, says Kirk. I'm taking all you guys back to your respective homes. The leader asked to be taken to Eden, but Kirk says he has orders to the contrary. He reiterates his sickbay orders to Spock and leaves the transporter room. Chance of Herbert, 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 trailing off behind him. Back on the bridge, Chekhov tells Kirk that he thinks he knows one of the runaways. She is Irina Geliulin. They were in Starfleet Academy together, though she dropped out. Kirk is incredulous. One of those was in the Academy? He gives Chekhov permission to go see her. Spock's back. He tells Kirk that Kirk could be wrong about Eden being a myth. Also, these weirdos aren't just weirdos. They're actually smart people who've chosen a different path. Take their leader, Dr. Severin. Wicked smart expert in acoustics, communications, and electronics, though he was relieved of all those duties when he started this movement. Kirk's heard of him. Kind of stunned that that's who that is. Tongo Rat is about as smart as his father is when it comes to space studies. Kirk's having a hard time wrapping his head around it. These are smart people who have rejected the modern. Spock explains, There are some who are not into the planned perfection, the constant balance that has been created in society. They search for an Eden, where spring comes. Kirk says, fine, but they don't have to steal ships and be babies about it. By the way, Spock, what makes you so sympathetic to them? Spock says it's not sympathy, but curiosity. They see themselves as aliens, even on their home worlds. He knows how that feels. Down in sickbay, the one they call Adam is playing a song about how cool things will eventually be. Chekhov comes in to see Arena. Away from the others, he berates her. You were a scientist. What the heck? Arena says she's glad to see him and happy with the choices that she has made. Chekhov says he's happy with the choices that he's made, too, though they obviously still have feelings for each other. She tries to sway him to her apparently freewheeling ways, though he rebuffs her. Suddenly, a tussle. The group is fighting with some red shirts, demanding to see their leader as we head to commercial. Act 2. As his people protest outside, we find out why Severin did not want a physical. He's a carrier for Synthococcus novae, a sort of superbug that sprung up as a result of the sterilized society in which everyone lives in the 23rd century. Everyone except the primitives among whom Severin and his people were trying to live. Had he gotten to them, they'd have all died. While he suffers no ill effects, he's sort of a typhoid Mary. In fact, he may have infected members of the Enterprise crew. It'll take about a day for McCoy to find out. In the meantime, Severin should be quarantined, Kirk tells his followers, and they start with the Herbert chants again, and a short song from Adam, and a pretty hard recruitment push among the Enterprise crew. Kirk asks Spock to try to communicate with them and keep them in line. Spock makes a deal with Severin. He'll use the Enterprise to find Eden. He'll also ask the Federation to let them settle Eden, 
But if they keep trying to get the members of the Enterprise crew to quit and join them, none of that's going to happen. In their talk, Severn admits that he knew he was a carrier. He knew he was restricted to traveling in areas with advanced technology. And that seems to have made him want to throw such areas off. The layers of artificial atmosphere, the programs and those computers that run your ship and your lives for you, they bred what my body carries. He says they've infected him, and only the primitives can cleanse him. Spock points out that Severin just meeting the primitives would kill them. Severin seems to relent. He'll talk to his people about being cool. On the bridge, Spock tells Kirk that Severin is insane. He hasn't checked with McCoy about that, but he is certain. Kirk says he's sorry that Severin turned out to be insane, but Spock says that doesn't diminish his interest in their movement. That's not insane, even if Severin is. He'd like permission, by the way, to locate Eden. And if he could have Chekhov's help and auxiliary control, that'd be super. Adam comes to Spock's quarters to talk, though he's distracted by Spock's Vulcan harp. They agree to play together at some point. Down in auxiliary control, Irina comes to see Chekhov. Distracted by who she is and what they were, Chekhov spills the fact that people could control the whole ship from this room. So way to go, Chekhov. Also, he and Spock are looking for Eden. Back together, the Seekers of Eden think that they are swaying various crew members to their cause. Also, Arena says they could run the whole ship from auxiliary control. So again, way to go, Chekhov. Now let's go out and swing as many as we can. It so starts to chime. Act 3. Adam and one of the Eden Seekers knock out a song that, call me a hippie if you want to, totally makes sense. Maybe if we stopped pushing each other and instead started calling each other friend or brother... Life would be better. Weak last line, but the rest of the song is not terrible. Call me a hippie if you want to. Then Spock sits in on an instrumental number. The Enterprise has really gotten into the music. Perhaps this has to do with Severin's expertise in acoustics and communication. For some reason, the music is being broadcast all over the Enterprise. That's enough to distract the guard watching Severin. Tongo Rad delivers a sort of nerve pinch, disables the guard, and frees Severin. They then take over auxiliary control. In no time, they've taken over the ship. Destination, Eden, which will take the Enterprise through Romulan space. Also, try anything and I'll destroy the Enterprise. Peace and love, peace and love, Severin out. Kirk tells the Eden Seekers that Severin is insane. Then he has Spock tell them. The group does, of course, not believe either of them. Adam plays another song as Severin reworks some of the ship's circuits. He's constructed an auditory weapon that he says will stun the crew, though, if left unchecked, it will in fact kill them. Knowing that Severin and crew will try something soon, Scotty, Kirk, and Spock try to break into auxiliary control. Severin activates the sonic what's-it, and everyone on the Enterprise goes down. Act 4. Spock, Kirk, and Scotty come too, though the ultrasonic assault continues. Kirk is able to disable the weapon. As people wake up, they find that they still have no control of the ship, and a shuttlecraft has been stolen. It's on Eden. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Chekhov beam down to Eden, which it turns out is no paradise. All of the plants are violently acidic. Chekhov touches a flower and is burned. Adam has eaten the fruit of a tree and lies dead. In the shuttlecraft, the remaining seekers nurse feet burned by contact with the planet's surface. Kirk and crew prepare to beam everyone up for treatment, though Severin argues that no one is leaving. Despite all he's seen, a mad Severin climbs a tree, eats of its fruit, and dies almost immediately. Later, back in orbit around Starbase, 
Kirk is preparing to send the four survivors down. Spock and Chekhov say goodbye to Irina, with Spock encouraging her to continue her search for Eden. He has no doubt that they will find it, or make it themselves. The end. Ken, if I learned anything, I learned to never trust a man with egg on his shirt. <laughs> egg or an egg? Because there was like, there were there were a couple of pendants that looked like maybe a cross section of a hard boiled egg. Is that what you're referring to? Y- yes. Yeah. Okay. It's the the hard boiled egg with um, the well, little like, infinity symbol. Well, like a rune. It. Yeah. Was it mm-hmm. the infinity symbol? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. 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 So so then you know which came first, the chicken or the egg? Right. Doesn't matter because it's all one, dude. Yeah, all, all one. Yeah, and then you hold see, up your hand, kind of like that, like I'm doing right now. I'm sorry, let yeah. me put that closer to the microphone so people can see oh, it. Oh, now I can see it. Yeah, yeah. there you go. So, yeah, <laughs> brother. Um, it really fantastic, by the way, that uh, egalitarianism, totally a thing, right? So among the criminals is an mm-hmm. ambassador's son, mm-hmm. and because of that, nobody is going to be jailed. Now- He is the son of an ambassador who is negotiating right now to get into the Federation, right? Right. So basically somebody up the chain in the Federation said, we really want to impress these people with how upright and good we are. So let's let this one kid get away with um, Grand Theft Spaceship. Yeah. Which, by the way, would be a totally awesome game. Right. (laughs) Like knocking over green ladies and, you know, beating up triple traders, just beating up triple traders and taking all their Latinum or whatever passes for money in the 23rd, but not 24th century. Right. Yeah. Grand Theft Spaceship. Look for it. Coming soon. Yeah. The whole thing thing really kind of surprised me that that's the reason he gets away with it. It's a diplomat's son, because otherwise I would have hoped that Kirk just swung around, throw him in the brig. Take the ship. Well, there, there is no more ship, but take him back to where they stole right. the ship. Done. We are done with you. You would actually hope that Kirk would do that anyway. I mean, you would hope that yeah, Kirk would say, yeah. you know, okay, look, I was told not to put you in the brig, but you obviously can't be trusted. So I'm going to put you in the brig. And guess what? Tell your dad. See if I care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, and, and by the yeah. way, let me go down the list of every time that I tried to listen to what a, a diplomat had to say, because it didn't go well. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. That, that was the other yeah. thing I was thinking about, too, although it was a diplomat from, from someplace else. But yeah, it was mm-hmm. sort of, I, I was really sort of shocked by that. I also don't really understand. So this one is a diplomat's son. Mm-hmm. So we're going to let all six of them, who have already stolen a spaceship, just run around and do whatever. Well, that's the thing with the Enterprise is uh, once you get beamed on board, you pretty much have just free run You've of the got ship. Run of the place. That's right. Go Although anywhere. Scotty is fine kicking one of those barefoot what's-its out of engineering when it comes to it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, one thing from a production point of view, I don't know if it bothered you as much as it bothered me, but there are a lot of post-production camera tricks in here, like uh, doing an optical zoom where, it, it, you know, clearly it was a wide shot, but then just in order to create a, a more dramatic moment or reaction in post, they kind of push in. Nope. And then it makes everything look horribly grainy. And, and uh, yeah, there, there were several of those in there that uh, even with the HD restoration really stood out to me this time around. I've noticed it before, but in this one, it just seems like uh, a lot of the, the edits and camera tricks were not not that good. That's weird because yeah. I have noticed it before and it's bothered me. Didn't mm-hmm. I didn't even notice it this time. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Maybe I was just too dazzled by uh, Charles Napier's smile. 
<laughs> no, <laughs> Severin's ears. Severin's although ears. first time I saw Severin's ears come on, and this doesn't count as singing, by the way. The first time I saw Severin on screen, I immediately thought, Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean, because that really seemed exactly <laughs> yeah. like it. Although now I'm thinking, you know, I shave my head. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking uh, next convention that you and I are at. Oh, somebody's got to paint that on me. I don't even know. No, yeah. no. Just the just the flower painted on top of my head. Okay, good. I think that might count good. as a costume too. Hey, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. We often, you know, say you especially will say, well, you know, they explain that it's science. Yeah. And I'll say, well, they explain that it was science, but it's not really science. They right. just sort of say it's science and you're okay with that. Chekhov actually explained how we find planets, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like actually explain how we actually find planets. Right. I was so impressed right. with that. Because yeah. if you didn't, if you didn't watch it, or if you don't remember, he's basically like, so we know where some planets are, but then we also know that there are other planets out there. So what we do is we compare where we think these planets should go with where they're actually going. And if there's any variation, we assume that that's like another planetary body sort of affecting, you know, the way we thought it was going to go. Yeah. And, yeah. They're, and they're looking for the, the gravitational effects on unknown uh, uh uh, celestial bodies. It's really, really cool. We actually had a listener, uh, Alice, point that out in an email uh, before the recording of the show, and I, oh, really? I thought that was completely awesome. Yeah, it, it's totally awesome. This mm-hmm. is one of those things because I'll hear people occasionally. I mean, those are one of those uh, things you always hear about Star Trek. It's like, oh yeah, these people flying a spaceship made me want to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. I was never that guy because you know, even if I were a pilot, I'm probably not going to get to fly a spaceship. You know, <laughs> right. so that that leap doesn't happen for me. But but I mean, there was like this Mister Science moment right there that I was like, wow, I could see yeah. that if I weren't a jaded 40 something, <laughs> you know, I might say, wow, there may be something to this science thing. Instead, I'll just wait for people to discover planets and tell me about them. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was very, very cool. I was confused by one other thing. I think it was in the same scene, actually. Chekhov says uh, the computers on the Enterprise contain the sum of all human knowledge. So while we were bemoaning the fact that there was no backup for Memory Alpha last week or a few <laughs> weeks ago, apparently Memory Alpha is the backup. Yeah, and so right. it, if every ship in Starfleet gets destroyed, mm-hmm. then thank goodness we have Memory Alpha. But we don't really need Memory Alpha because the sum of all human knowledge <sighs> yeah. is in the uh, computer of the Enterprise, which is great. Yeah, that's good. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm glad. Although yeah. now I'm wondering why we even bothered with Memory you, Alpha. You could apparently just put it on a handful of those little plastic discs that they <laughs> exactly. carry around with them. Those, yeah. those memory chips. Yeah. The other question, of course, is if the sum of all human knowledge is in the computers of the Enterprise, should the Enterprise have shields? Ah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, because apparently it's just if you're on Memory Alpha, yeah. just open door. Information open door wants policy. to be free. <laughs> exactly. It does. Klingons are going to come knock on the side of the Enterprise one day. Hey, do you have do you have a recipe for plumic soup? <laughs> right, thank well. goodness. I mean, there are a few people on board the Enterprise who do have that recipe. But if they're all gone, they can just go to the. Uh, Although that would be the sum of Vulcan knowledge. Well, I was going to say, this is the sum of human knowledge. If you want Vulcan Uh, knowledge, you make a good point. Except if you share the knowledge with the humans, then does it not become human knowledge? And thus, do we not have all of the information on board the Enterprise? Ooh, there you go. I'm deep, man. You reach. You reach. Hey, I have a very simple question. Yeah. Um, So they they get to the planet. They get to not Eden. And uh, you find dead Adam, dead Charles Napier. And then everybody else is hiding inside the shuttlecraft. Yep. 
why did the crew go there and open the shuttlecraft and get them out of the shuttlecraft? They were safe in there. Well, the Galileo had a little bit of a TARDIS thing going on, being bigger on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the Galileo true. 2, which is what this one was, uh, may not have. So they may not have been able to get as good a wide shot as they wanted. Okay. <laughs> That's about the only thing I can think of, because otherwise you're right. In fact, when you know, I love Kirk, by the way. He's like, he's like, oh, wow, everything's acid, even the grass on the ground. Oh, my God, am I safe? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, no, you'll be fine for a little while. Oh, okay, good. Well, then let's go get okay. the half-naked people out and throw them on the grass and right. see what right. happens. We should pitch whoever did that Spider-Man musical on turning the way to Eden into a rock opera Broadway extravaganza. It's hair meets... Well, I guess it's hair meets Star Trek. So one thing that always uh, strikes me as fascinating in Star Trek, we tend to think of it as a bit of a counterculture thing from time to time, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Is this a counter-counterculture episode of Star Trek? Uh, how do you mean? Well, a few ways. I mean, first of all, they're dirty hippies. <laughs> right, yeah. And they're they're treated as such by one of the characters. It really surprised me, but we'll come to that later, because mm-hmm. I, was, I was totally blown away yep. by how they were treated by one particular character. Anyway, it it just seemed like it seemed like a counter counterculture episode. It seemed like you know a straighten up and fly right kind of episode. It seemed mm-hmm. like a you can achieve whatever you want to achieve as long as you kind of like we were saying a few weeks ago about Mirror Romain. You know what I mean? I mean, mm, just you know yeah. you you can be whatever you want to be as long as you follow these rules and stay in line. Right. Um, there was something sort of interesting to me about the fact that they were near Romulan space. Um, Kirk is worried about the fact that the Romulans may attack. The Romulans never actually do attack. But here it seems to me that the damage is done, you know, not by the established enemy, but just by like, like proximity in a way or nearness of the enemy or, or I I can't, I can't Mm. quite put my finger on it, but there's something about this is going to get us. You know, we, yeah. because of where we are, this is going to get us. But it's not even being where they are that's going to get them. It's just it's just the 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 stepping outside the line, stepping outside the boundaries that seems to sort of like like be the threat in a way. Well, that's interesting because I, I thought the Romulan thing was really, uh, to me, kind of a throwaway. It, 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 I, I didn't even expect when it was mentioned in the episode, I didn't even expect that there would be a Romulan threat at all. We were just going to see through the story of Severin and the hippies hmm. that we, we wouldn't actually have to deal with Romulans. So, and you see, it seemed to me that the threat of the Romulans was a look where getting on the line will get you. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. we're now yeah. in horrible danger because we ended up, you know, going where these people who are not wearing uniforms, these yeah. people who are not living, you know, by the by the straight and narrow, or living the straight and narrow, you know, route, or however you want to put that. The fact that we've been swayed off course by these by these, you know, well, dirty hippies, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> has now put us in so much danger um, that that we could easily be clobbered by our enemies because we're not, you know, we're not living the button down nine to five Herbert way. Right. No, that's really interesting because I, I hadn't tied the two together. Like, I, I think uh, I'm totally on the same page with you. We reach, if I may say, uh, <laughs> uh, about the very... Some I- say we reach too far. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Um, but we definitely reach about the idea that uh, that this is a condemnation of their counterculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that you take it the step further and uh, – uh, the the illustration of the Romulan threat is, is kind of like well look if you're it, let's put this in like Cold War terminology mm-hmm. if you're not a dyed in the wool red blooded American then you're something else and if you're something else it's just a step toward being a dirty communist right you're just you're just a step away from moving to Russia right you know so yeah I, which I think I, is what, I'm, what I believe is what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I, I get it now. I, I right. get where you're trying because the, when they mentioned the Romulan thing, I, I sort of, uh, I was less interested in that. To me, it was a sort of like where we're going to figure out another way to ramp up the threat mm-hmm. uh, and and ramp up the reason that Kirk needs to get out of there. Um, but I didn't really give it much thought beyond that. But I, I like the way you tied it back in oh, to, well, thank you. Uh, to their counter counterculture. Because, yeah, I, I'm on the same page with you that um, as much credit as we give to Star Trek as being a progressive show, even counterculture from time to time, um, this is kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I am fascinated that uh you know every generation or two the, there's sort of a, a resurgence a resurgence of utopian idealists commune enthusiasts uh maybe even hippies <laughs> if you want to call them that um there were a lot of those that kind of popped up in the late 19th century and definitely the ones we know about from the 60s and even now i was just reading an article about kind of the commune culture in Southern California uh, Mm -hmm. for two reasons, because you have a lot of economic disparity and you also have very few laws that uh, manage the numbers of non-related residents who can be in a single home. So all these people get together and instead of being faced with huge rents and huge uh, real estate prices, you get, you know, 20, 30 people together to try to live as a commune. The problem, though... (laughs) is that you get too many people together and then they start acting human. (laughs) And very few of these models end up surviving for very long. People will steal from each other or not fess up when they do something wrong or there's a problem. So the ideals quickly kind of uh, uh, fall apart and uh, and people move on from those uh, uh, relatively quickly. but I am also really fascinated with the idea then that this, in this episode, we spell out the problem, the downside with Star Trek's future. I, that to me, to have that early in the episode, uh, Spock and Kirk having this conversation and then reiterated by Severin about how we have sanitized everything. Mm-hmm. And there is a detachment from nature. Spock and Kirk kind of sympathize with the idea. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's too bad, although look at all the upside. Um, Kirk doesn't sympathize with it. Spock uh, well, does. The, yeah, well, Spock sympathizes with it. Kirk, Kirk for a moment, he kind of gets it. He's like, well, yeah, every, everybody wants to have that, uh, you know, that connection back to nature and all, but I'm done with that. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, he, he sort of brushes it off. Hmm. I don't know. I don't it happens know. for a second, trust me, and then it I, goes away. Yeah, it goes well, away. 
I, I, here's what I'll say. I wish mm-hmm. this is one of the many times that I wish that we had an idea of what life was like in the Federation, but outside of Starfleet. Because mm-hmm. I don't know where you hear uh, Kirk having any sort of the sympathy at all. I mean, what he actually says is something to the effect of they don't need to act like children about it. Well, I'm trying to figure out, could these people have set themselves up someplace else and live the primitive, simple life that they wanted to? They Now, they would not have been able to go to a planet of primitives like they talked mm-hmm. about. And Spock telling Severin that he would see if they can make that happen. If there actually are primitives there, no, that won't happen because that would violate the Prime Directive. But could they set themselves up someplace else? Um, this side of paradise would seem to indicate not. Because before yeah. we knew the effect of the spores, Kirk had orders to get all of the settlers off of Omicron City 3. Mm-hmm. With none of this pesky, do you want to leave Omicron City 3? <laughs> Business. <laughs> right. He's under orders from Starfleet when they get there and find people living there but before they know about the spores, to get everybody off there. Yeah. So for Kirk to say, well, they don't have to act like kids about it. They don't have to act like babies about it. You don't go around stealing starships. Well, I mean, is there is there a process by which you can go to the Federation and say, hey, listen, <laughs> I'd like to live on a planet without you. Is yeah. that is that possible? Can I go someplace where I can churn my own butter and make my own you know, clothing and, and not deal with, with uh, sort of the balance that you're bringing, offering, uh, imposing. I mean, because we don't know which one it is, right? I, I, I'd like to think that there is. I mean, we, we all kind of idealize the, uh, the, the future that Star Trek presents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, we're only given a, a small piece of that. We're only right. given uh, that vision of the future through the lens of the Federation and Starfleet. Right. Um, so one would like to think that there is uh, – well, I mean, we all know that Kirk – loves to talk about freedom and individuality mm-hmm. <laughs> when it really comes down to it and you have people expressing a bit of freedom and individuality that doesn't fit with uh, Federation or Starfleet standards, uh, then there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is kind of difficult to, uh, to reconcile with this episode. I do agree with Kirk to the extent that, yeah, you can't just go around stealing ships um, and you should be able to present your case in a uh, in a rational way to uh, to try to get what you want. So he, he's got a point to that extent. Uh, but I'm like you. I I want to know what are the uh, the methods that one could realistically go through <laughs> to just live the way you want to live. If you want to go churn butter, go churn butter. What form can I fill out to for me and my five <laughs> cronies to right. go live on a planet that, right. that doesn't involve any of this? Yeah. Right. I, I will or do you say have this, to wait I mean, until holodecks come along 70 or 80 years later and you can just go live in one? Right, right. Uh, but you still have to go through Federation paperwork to, or true. Starfleet paperwork to get in the holodeck. That's you gotta, true. You gotta holodecks, the they don't just grow on trees. No, they don't. No. Um, um, not like poisonous fruit, anyway. No. Um, His name was Adam. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I was okay with it. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do respect Spock's ability to show respect to Severin mm-hmm. um, because Kirk barges in and immediately antagonizes the group. He, mm-hmm. he is Herbert uh, for all intents. Um, but Spock does something that I know I have a hard time doing and probably a lot of people have a hard time doing, which is showing genuine interest and then finding a connection, even if you're not on the same page philosophically. Um, I thought that was really cool. 
that that even if Spock is not a member of this cult, he's not um, he, he doesn't necessarily grok <laughs> them entirely. <laughs> I, mean, so, uh, I think he does, though. I mean, I actually found it fascinating that the most logical person among them mm-hmm. is the one who's, hey, live and let live, you know? You guys mm-hmm. want to be that way? Be that way. Uh, except for not you, Severin, because you will kill any primitives that you come across, mm-hmm. you know, and it turns out intentionally. Um, and I love the fact that, like, the next time you see Spock talking to Kirk about him, he's like, oh, yeah, he's crazy. Yeah, right, he's right. He's just insane. Yeah, yeah. But what he's trying to do is not insane. Yeah. I mean, I really did think that Spock actually did grok the fullness. Heck, he jammed with them, man. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know. What, what, why, why were they broadcasting that all over the ship, by the way? I have no idea. Yeah, bad idea. Yeah, that was a very bad idea. <laughs> it strikes me as a terrible idea. Music wasn't bad. Eh. Uh, you know. That last line of that one song is terrible, but. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, ghastly, actually. <laughs> Okay, exactly. so here's the thing. Forgive me, because mm-hmm. because we've talked about Kirk and sort of his like sort of derisive treatment, yeah, of of the you know dirty, filthy hippies a couple of times. Uh, right. Can we talk about Nurse Chapel? Yeah, please. Holy yeah. cow! Did she hate these people from the word go? Right. Complete disrespect for Severin when it came time for his examination, and this is before we knew that he was insane. Now. I'm not saying it's okay to treat the insane poorly. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, you might in a warped way be able to tell yourself, well, it doesn't matter how I treat him because he's crazy. And I think I'm treating him bad anyway. So what do I care? But he's just a guy at that point. He's just a guy with no shoes who's a little bit of a hippie. And she is just like, won't ha-, like, Bleh. you know, I mean, she <laughs> has nothing right. but disdain for him. And then when there is a fight in the hall to keep the rest of the Seekers of Eden out, she goes to fight. Nurse Chapel <laughs> goes to fight. She stands alongside the red shirts and is pushing at the hippies. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then she comes back in from that and says, I thought all of the animals were kept in cages. Oh, I know. Fleeping hippies, man. And nobody, nobody says anything like, uh, come on, Nurse Chapel, maybe, you know, tone it down just a tiny bit. Let's <laughs> treat our guests with respect or let's treat our guests like guests. Yeah. I mean, she's just like, I hate them. Yeah. <laughs> which which was amazing to see from Chapel. This is one of the, I mean, and this may be the most blatant, and we've talked before about how they'll make Scotty stupid when they need him to be stupid, or they'll make mm-hmm, Bones mm-hmm. a lazy Southerner when they need him to be a lazy Southerner. Yeah. This may be the worst example ever of just making a character, the gumbification, the complete gumbification of a character. Let's just mold her into something completely different, because this is a woman who, what was, uh, oh, like the one with, um, uh, I can't think of the name of anything the, with sort of the barbarian queen and the ambassador who is trying to make her nicer and Spock, uh, Kirk falls oh, in love with a, a, her. Ilan of Troyes. Ilan yeah. of Troyes. Yes. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. She's totally yeah. respectful of, of the Troyans. Right. Or not the Troyans. She was going to, whatever. She's yeah. totally respectful of the barbarians at that point. Right. But dirty stinking hippies are dirty and they stink and they're hippies. Right. <laughs> I mean, she is just, ah, uh, I mean, ah, uh, Okay. Yeah. She may be a child of a commune. This may actually be the deal who just like could not get away fast enough when she was 16 and a half. Yeah, that was really weird. The the, the animals line really yeah. kind of jumped out to me. I was like, oh, wow. wow. Whoa, really? Wow. Captain Cages. Yep. Okay. Yep. 
uh, could I could I go see Doctor Mbenga instead? Maybe because <laughs> <laughs> he might. Uh, yeah, might it's be it's it's possible that Severin wasn't even sick. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The other things that I, I thought were the most interesting to pick up on in this, well, first of all, the very clear uh, historical parallels. You know, you had a lot of uh, social upheaval in the late 60s. Like I mentioned that there were experiments in commune living. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a drug culture. You had the uh, counterculture movement, uh, youth movement, you know, all these things kind of coming together uh, at a head, and which makes this episode very much a product of its times. Um, we also have to mention that Dr. Timothy Leary, who, for those of you who may not know, um, ran psychological experiments with psychedelic drugs at Harvard. He was forced out, um, even though at that time the drugs that he was experimenting with or using the uh, the drugs he was experimented with uh, were perfectly legal. Uh, but then he was very quickly considered dangerous. You know, uh, Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America. And then he became kind of a sensation growing this weird cult, for lack of a better word, of followers who were tuned into his ideas of mind expansion. So I, I think Severin is a great science fiction stand-in for the Timothy Leary-type character. Um, but the other thing that I really couldn't help but be drawn in uh, by this episode was exploring how a cult operates, uh, the in-group, out-group mentality, uh, the deception and self-deception, particularly on uh Severin's part, um, the the total loyalty and belief in their ideals superseding law. You know, I, I'll. I, I, here's the thing. Let me preface this, Ken, by saying that I, I agree with you that I think that Kirk um, expressed himself in some very poor ways here, and there has to be a a line that we find where we can respect the individual desire to live the way that they want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with the space hippies, at least as they are expressed here by Severin and his followers, is that they get to a point where they just completely eschew uh, not just decent manners, but, but certainly the law as well. They have stolen a spaceship. They take over the new ship that they're on. Um, they, there's, uh, there's the attitude that they have that what they're doing goes beyond the uh, the simple decency of respecting the other people around them, the people who are the out group around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's the way that a cult would operate. You know, to a cult, the ideals of the cult are more, more important than even following regularly, commonly held uh, uh, acceptance of law. Yeah, so. I, think, I think my problem, though, is mm-hmm. that they are treated as the same thing mm-hmm. so here mm-hmm. are a bunch of peaceniks right yeah here are a bunch of peaceniks who, who i mean they actually when they sing in the song about you know would it not be better to call you friend mm-hmm. than to try to push you out of my way mm-hmm. that's that's a very sort of peacenik idea it's also not a bad idea no not I mean, at all it's, it's actually a fairly respectable idea and the only time that we have heard that idea presented, oh, it turns out they're members of a cult. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that kind of that kind of annoyed me. 
Well, but here's the thing. I, but I put. I, I agree with you. I put the blame at Severin's feet. His his dirty, unwashed, bare, hippie feet. Um, because people who are taken in by a, a cult of personality or whatever kind of cult you you may find them in, um, they are not stupid, um, and they're certainly not dirty, uh, but they may just be presented with wrong or incomplete information. I mean, to me, that's kind of one of the takeaways here yeah. is that there is a harm in being blind to the reality of your situation. The fact that they would completely reject the idea of uh, the medical diagnosis of, look, th this guy is sick and he needs help. <laughs> Right, you know, um, I understand what you're saying, but let's take let's let's go from thirty thousand feet. Mm -hmm. The two times that we have seen communal living or hippie living, mm -hmm. they were either all a bunch of druggies who mm -hmm. had no idea what they were doing, a la this side of paradise, right? Or they were a cult, yeah, a la this episode. I mean, we say, I mean, you have captain of the starship Enterprise, Kirk professing peace every time they sail in but yeah. as has been pointed out by some of his adversaries in the past they sail in with weapons and shields and the ability to call in more ships with weapons and shields right if you come across anybody who is literally seriously honestly just about peace uh with the exception of who was it not a private little war what was the one where the where the where the klingons ended up kind of having to work a little bit with the federation Oh, we're not talking about the Organians. We're, we're talking about. Um, we may be talking about the Organians because they yeah. were like so. They were so peace, but then the problem was they weren't even really peace at that point. They were just like ah, nuts to you guys. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they actually ended up becoming sort of worse. They were sort of right. militaristically peace in a way that even right. the Federation is not. I, I, sorry, I, I know I'm circling around mm -hmm. a couple of times. My biggest problem is when you come across hippies, there's something wrong with them. When you come across people who really are just about hey, you know. I'm your brother. Yeah. Well, you're either stoned or, you know, being led by a a Manson Jim Jones type character. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I, I get where you, I, I reach you, man. I think we reach on See, that. You just sound like Kirk now. You just sound like Kirk. Hey, man, we reach, brother. <laughs> I am with it. Yes, exactly. I, I It feels like we probably do. It's weird to me, though, that that Star Trek kind of doesn't at least the original series doesn't mm -hmm. it i'm a little surprised yeah well maybe the other story isn't the interesting story to tell because maybe the other story where you have a band of hippies who call each other brother and just want to live off the land but they don't steal spaceships and they don't kill people on planets where they arrive because they're carrying diseases that's the less interesting story to tell so it goes back to yeah. it goes back to your point of saying, well, I want to know what life in this 23rd century Federation is like for the people who aren't part of the Federation or aren't uh, uh, living and, and, you know, by those set of rules. Except if we're looking at Star Trek as a way toward the future, then here's what we found out. People who believe in peace and love above all other things, again, are either druggies or they're being led by a cult leader. And by the way. There is no Eden where they're going. 
There mm-hmm. is there is no real destination for where they're going because they think they're going to live someplace where it's going to be all peace and nice. And they're going to eat the fruit of the trees. Hey, guess what? The fruit of the trees is poison and you can't even put your feet on the ground because that whole thing is just – this is just a disastrous thing. And by the way, the communists are outside. Well, this goes back to my thing about being blind to the reality of their situation. The The problem in this episode is the cult mentality. Back away from this episode. This is what I'm talking about. Star Trek has mm-hmm. presented us twice with hippies. Hippies, yeah. which are an actual thing at the time that Star Trek is being presented, right? When Star Trek is on TV, there are hippies outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when Star Trek is first on TV, there are hippies outside. And what we're being told by Star Trek both times that we encounter hippies in Star Trek Oh, no, 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 no. Stay away from the hippies. Yeah. No, I, hey, I, I'm with you that it would have been a, uh, a, much, a much happier ending if they had dropped the hippies off at Omicron SETI 3 and said, look, we found Eden. <laughs> <laughs> Touch that Here flower. It will not burn you. No. That's a good. Oh, see? Now, but that's that, a, there's my but, novel. But, there's the novel see? I want to read. Right. But that, that goes back to the cult mentality of not accepting the reality of the situation. So if if they could only have reached with Kirk or they could have only reached, oh, I don't know, a computer with the sum of all human knowledge that says if you go to Omicron City 3, things are going to be great, then that's what they should have done. Time for the messages, morals, and meanings part of the show. What do these dirty hippies have to tell us? And is it still relevant today? Can I mention very early in the recording of this podcast that uh, this is the much derided episode, The Way to Eden, mm-hmm. uh, a.k.a. the Space Hippies episode. But... What I'm so glad that you and I got to do just now is have uh, an engaged and hopefully engaging conversation uh, about what this episode is really about. And so far, we have not mentioned uh, Charles Napier's bare chest or thigh-high boots. Um, we have we, we mentioned the bicycle uh, wheel instrument, uh, but we didn't mention the, uh, the the kind of other trappings of hippiedom that would date this episode. So now we get to kind of uh, uh, really put a put a nail on it and say, what does this episode actually hold up? Is it as bad as people think it is? And uh, and what do we learn from it? So, Ken, here we go. Does the episode after all of this actually hold up? Oh, that's so tough. I think there are a lot of really great ideas in this episode. First of all, the music was not as bad as I remembered mm-hmm. i i mean the last line of that one song is just terrible <laughs> and it's always the one that's shown in clips to show how bad this episode is so that, yeah, right. that one line of that one song is terrible but i mean it's it's not as horrible honestly as i remembered it and so maybe the episode holds up because it's not as bad as you remember <laughs> i'm not sure that's really praise yeah um I mean, it's about hippies. It's about it's about very much of that time hippies, and so it's going to be kind of hard for it to hold up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like it's like you can watch a Charlie Chaplin movie now and say, "Oh, it's funny," but you're not going to say, "Oh, and this would play well to a mainstream audience today because it's so much like what they know." No, you kind of have to you kind of have to be okay with an old movie to appreciate an old movie. 
mm-hmm. and you kind of have to be okay with dirty, stinking hippies. <laughs> I actually kind of have to love them for this episode to hold up stylistically. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is very much, it is, it is stamped, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. And so that's going to make it hard for a lot of people to watch. Um, anyway, that's my feeling. What about you? Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page with you. I mean, stylistically, no, it just it, it doesn't hold up. And, and this is the one episode that firmly dates Star Trek to yeah. the late 1960s. Yeah, um, you, you can only look at this with the context of trying to piece together what late 1960s America was like. And that has not been the case in many, many episodes of Star Trek. Um, I also feel like, yeah, you know, you said the music isn't as bad as one would think, but I also feel like whenever you put popular music in a show, then you're doomed. Or, or at least popular style music, what they were doing here. Because... You know, if it's not actually popular music from the time right. and popular music that has withstood the test of time, it will only sound weird to you. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's and you see it in TV shows all the time. They, oh, this is the greatest band in the world, and they have a hot new single. But then you hear it, and it's like, no, that that would not be a hot new single today. You know, right, right, right. Um, but I feel like the ideas here. Do hold up, and and they were worth talking about, and they were worth debating. Um, I found that to be the most interesting thing about it overall. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there were many interesting threads to go down, but maybe the idea could have been explored differently. Uh, either going down this road of looking at the cult aspect of it, or looking at the individual freedom versus the uh the the kind of rigid <laughs> group ideology of the the federation versus these the this very small kind of seemingly harmless group of hippies um maybe in a few years you never know we'll get to revisit the idea of a uh, charismatic semi-religious figure who will entice the enterprise crew with the promise of a mythical new world you never know that might uh, show up as a plot line somewhere down the road yeah um it will be so, maligned then too if it does by the way yeah, it might, it might. <laughs> um but no i mean it, it, the episode does not hold up just stylistic all that but but if you watch it with the idea of what we do on mission log trying to pick apart the morals meanings messages uh then I think you've got something. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. here. There's a lot here to, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you will end up, uh, you may well end up disagreeing with somebody mm-hmm. that you yeah. oftentimes agree with. Right. For example, <laughs> I don't think you and I are on the same page on this episode at all. Uh, no, I, I think we're, I think we're maybe in the same book, but we're not on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, well, tell me then. So what are the messages that, that you picked up out of this? Oh, counterculture is wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that that to me is this message. Now, there is a thinking person who is willing to say, you know, you guys aren't completely wrong, and I hope you'll keep working at it. But the way you tried to go about it is wrong. And I don't disagree that the way they tried to go about it is wrong. Don't steal mm-hmm. a starship. Okay. And certainly Severin is insane. Yeah, He does know on some level that if there are people on the planet that he's going to, he is going to kill them. But he wants mm-hmm. what he wants. Okay, that's bad, and that's a bad way to be. Mm-hmm. But it's only Spock who even goes that far. It's only the most intelligent among them who goes that far, 
everybody else is like, well, freaks, hippies, whatever. Except for, you know, it, except they are a ship of lemmings at the same time. Somebody's like, hey, you should come with us. And Sulu's like, hey, maybe I should. You know, <laughs> everybody's, everybody's sort of able to be swayed really easily or, or well, not swayed all the way, but they, they seem willowy a bit. It seems like the crew of the Enterprise, not unlike uh, what happened on Omicron SETI 3, now that I think about it. You know, yeah. Yeah, oh, this is better? Okay, that's better. Tell you what, I'm going to throw off all this stuff and go that way. Overriding message, though, really does seem to be that, you know, living outside the straight and narrow, living outside the 9 to 5, living outside the button down, not being a Herbert is a bad thing. Yeah. Really, honestly, seems it is the only message that I can pick up from this. Unless you're unless you're willing to sort of be way above it, which Spock is both willing to be and is able to be. Everybody else is kind of like, glad that's over. Well, I thought that was the interesting thing to explore here is that, like you said, the most intelligent guy on the show is the one who does reach out to them. Right. Um, and, and Spock is a figure that we've seen time and time again sort of represents um, – uh, an ideal that that at least intellectually humans should <laughs> strive to be. You know, sometimes we are at our best when we take a step back and and use logic rather than our gut emotional reaction. Um, Spock's reaction to the hippies is better than Kirk's reaction for sure. Um, the interesting thing to me here is about drawing the line between the. Between individual freedom, uh, individual uh, uh, desires and the right to live their lives as they want to and a line where then that becomes uh, dangerous either to others or to themselves um, and how do we intervene with that or should we intervene with that? I think those are the interesting uh, moments for me in this episode. there is a message here about the grass not being greener. Um, clearly, uh, if it's acidic grass, then uh, <laughs> that'll be bad. Um, you know, and there's something here about sort of being a realist, at least sometimes. There's a great exchange between Chekhov and Irina where uh, <laughs> Irina, uh, Chekhov says to Irina, be correct occasionally. But also from Arena's perspective, be incorrect occasionally. Yeah, I thought that was that was a nice meeting of the minds, uh, and and instead of trying to draw that line of demarcation, uh, at least they're they're trying to reach, man. They're trying to reach. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not wrong about you know? that. I'm just <laughs> I'm bummed. No, I mean honestly, it bummed me out. It bummed me out that the I mean just the total. And don't misunderstand, I would much rather live in the Star Trek world than the Eden world. Sure. I would totally rather be that guy, but I'm okay with the people who live on the farm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the farm being a commune in Middle Tennessee, not just people who live on a farm. People who live on the farm. I don't even actually know if the farm is still going. I think it might be, but I'm not sure. Or or like the communes that you were talking about in Southern California. I don't want to live there, but I'm fine with somebody else if they want to. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I would rather not be, you know, made fun of for thinking that maybe we should treat people who think differently than us respectfully. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's that's the other thing. I mean, I, I know I keep coming back to the song, but I mean, his whole thing of like, you know, should I push you down when I want to get past you? Or should I say, hey, brother, do you mind if I sneak past? 
<laughs> I mean, that's really that's really the most he's saying. He's not saying, so now we all have to go live on a commune. That yeah. doesn't count as singing either, by the way. Okay. He, he's not saying now we all have to be the same way. He's just saying, hey, how about if we're cool with each other? Would that be cool? Yeah. And and that's that seems to sort of be uh, the overriding answer seems to be no, sadly, unless you're talking to the smartest guy on the ship. But from yeah. everybody else, from all the rest of the people on the ship, it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I like your music. That's groovy. Yeah. I like your clothes. That's groovy. But no, the way you live is actually not good. Well, I, I also say they were dealing with some uh, some extreme circumstances. Well, they there. were. And, they uh, were. And, and if you don't have a madman like Dr. Severin and you don't have the cult mentality and you don't have the fact that there is uh, an acidic uh, people-killing planet that you will arrive on, then then yeah, then given all of those, then I can get behind the uh, the hippie song. Let's call each other brother and uh, and just be cool with each other. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all. That's all. I, I just I, you know I, I I don't want to be the wet blanket. I, I, I'm just saying that they they have a detachment from reality. But Kirk's answer to that is probably also the wrong answer to that. Uh, Spock represents something. Spock is probably the the hero of the show because he he represents a way to bridge that gap. Um, I think it's unfortunate that the hippies couldn't learn from the new information presented to them. You know, that that's the tragedy here. It's like, by the way, this planet, let's just send a landing party down or let's do a scan first. Let's make sure the planet doesn't try to kill you. And then if it does, seriously, we have this other planet. Spores, the whole thing, you will love it. Hmm. And and then then I think we would find the, the happy ending that uh, we would both prefer. Yeah, except that doesn't even seem like it was ever an option for a moment. I mean, no, I know. Spock I know. does yeah. say I would be willing to talk to them about possibly letting you colonize this planet if we actually find this planet that most people believe doesn't even exist. Yeah. But Kirk's already told them, here's what's going to happen. I'm taking you back to Starbase and then you're all going to be sent back to your original planet. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no level of <laughs> let's, let's see if we can work through this. Yeah. From the power structure. The power structure is like, wow, dirty hippies. You know where you should go? Back to wherever you came from. Back to dirty hippie land. No, not even yeah. dirty hippie land. They're trying to build dirty hippie land. That's no, no, true. no. You, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you go back to, you know, Ohio, Indiana, wherever you were before you got in that bus and came to the hate. That's yeah. all I'm saying. H A I G H G, by the way, not, not, uh, yeah, not, not the hate. Yeah. That's a whole, that's, that's that one with Edith Keener. Or, or Patterns of Force, I guess, would be the right. other one, too. There yeah. you go. All there right. you go. So here's the thing. I, I, I have come down saying that this episode is dated, that the music is dated, that costumes don't work. From a production point of view, it doesn't really work. But I liked it. <laughs> I, 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 I liked this episode. I mean, it, it's kind of – I would even say that I liked it more than uh, Spock's brain. Yeah, well, uh, Really? Yeah, I mean, it, Spock's Brain was an episode that, again, you go into it going like, okay, the, this episode is made fun of, it is derided, it is parodied, rightfully so, rightfully so. Um, but we still found something interesting to talk about in there. And in this, I felt like more so than Spock's Brain, there was an idea at play, or at least several ideas at play, mm -hmm. that got the gears going in my head. You know, uh, we got to talk about 
cults and communes and and rights of the individual and when when is a a structured society a bad thing i mean all of these are ideas that got explored in this and maybe they got explored in a way that doesn't hold up anymore but i'm not going to fault it for that <laughs> you know that is so interesting see i i like an episode of star trek that does make me think but i don't know that i like this episode I like the fact that it made me think, but sadly, it made me sad. <laughs> I mean, what, what I felt like, what I felt like was being said, what I felt like was being decided, um, ended up bumming me out. And yet, mm-hmm. there is, I mean, there is a lot of stuff to love about this, including, and and if you're still not sure who Charles Napier is or was, just <laughs> do yourself a favor, go go check IMDb for one of the latest pictures you can find of him. Yeah. Which I think is 2011, I right. believe, is maybe he when he away passed away. Yeah, so you'll you'll see that picture, and then you'll just be blown away. I mean, it's it's honestly hard not to like the episode just because of that. I mean, just just because. I mean, two words I never thought I would say together, or three words, are shirtless Charles Napier. <laughs> and I know you right. said we haven't mentioned it before, but I mean, he's like he's he's young and groovy in yeah, this episode, yeah. which may not mean as much to you. As it will when you say, oh, he was that guy from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and dude yeah. can sing, right? <laughs> there is that too. You know? And he gets a writing credit as well. Yeah. But, but you know, for all of those reasons, I, I, I liked it. But I get to look at this through the eyes of nostalgia. So there is that. And, and there is this idea that it is just sort of this goofy, weird experiment on Star Trek's part. But you look at where we've come in season three, and there have been a lot of just sort of forgettable episodes, a lot of just sort of slow episodes. This is neither. It is neither slow nor forgettable. And there are ideas worth talking about here. So for all those reasons, I... This is not an episode that I dreaded watching four or five times in prep for our show at all. That really sounds, man. <laughs> all right. Sadly, well, Ken, I, w- I wish there had been something to talk about in this episode, you know? Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What about next week? Will there be something to talk about next week, John? There may very well be, Ken. Next week, we'll be talking about the Cloud Minders. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Now if you'll excuse me, I have to take a shower. I'm fine with the whole brother and sister business, however, I'm also fine with shoes. and transmission.